I don't know if I can see my notes. I got so undone during worship. Man, the revelation of Jesus. Well, this summer has been a fun summer for me because I've got a chance not to spend quite as much speaking and actually got to spend more time listening to revelation given to other people on our staff and in our church family. We've been going through the names of God. Anybody remember the name Elohim? Turn to your neighbor and tell, what, tell them what it means. Elohim. It means all-powerful God, creator God. All right? Elohim means all-powerful God, creator God. And then we had um, uh, the name Elroi, which means the God who sees me. Yeah, a lot of you remember that one. Good job. Who did that? Jason Mariah did that one. And then uh, Carla did the one, Yahweh Rahak. What's that mean? Rahak. You guys look at me like, who knows, right? The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And uh, Clay and Kelly did um, Yahweh Hased. The Lord who is loving kindness. And we have one more. What was the other one? Tanner. Did El Sali? What does El Sali mean? The Lord who is my rock, my strength. And it's been really rich. And as I've been in the scriptures, it's, it, I don't know about you guys, but I'm like seeing like, wow, God is zealous about the glory of his name. Like he is jealous that his name would be glorified on the earth. It's incredible. If you read through the Old Testament, I've just been captured by this. This reality that the Lord' name is so important to him. It demonstrates who he is, his nature, what he's like. And he just has this jealous over his name. I was in Malachi this week, and I was just reading Malachi. And, and the Lord is ask, actually rebuking um, the worshipers. And, he, and he's talking about his name not being glorified. He says, you're bringing me lame offerings. Uh, you're bringing me the blind and the lame, and your governor would not even be pleased with that kind of offering. How can you, as the people who represent and worship me, bring me lame offerings? And then he lands, I'm just going to put one verse to show you a little bit, on verse 11 of Malachi 1, he says, My name will be great among the nations, and in every place worship is, is, which we just did, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Now that's another name we haven't talked about. The Lord of hosts was Yahweh Sabaoth. Sabaoth means of heaven's armies. He is the commander of the angelic realm, heaven's armies, and, and he goes to battle for you, for me, for his people. Yahweh Shabaoth. Um as I as I've just been in this place of my own personal study is just has brought me more and more to my knees in the sense that when we say our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. It, it makes me realize, you know, how um How little we grasp the bigness of God. How little we grasp the bigness of God. And, and that actually he, he entrusts his name to us. Like we carry his name. 
We carry his name. I um, have an illustration uh, from, from family members of mine. It's one of the blessings of being a family member of the speaker is you get used as an illustration, right, Ava? <laughs> I'm not going to use you as an illustration. I'm, I'm not your mom. I won't use you. But I'm going to use my grandsons. And I got permission. And uh, Heidi posted a picture of my three boys and they're playing colony football. And this is about seven years ago when they were in smaller football. And uh, they carry that name, the Whitworth boys. And, uh, and how many of you know that however they act or play, or how they, how they do life implicates Jeff and Heidi, their parents. Like, like how they act carries the Whitworth name with them, right? Right? And now they're playing for Colony High, and uh, this Friday night was their first game. And uh, how many of you know now they not only represent the Whitworth name, but now they represent the Colony name? So however they act on the field, however they play, however they pat each other, encourage each other, or even treat the other team with respect, implicates the colony football team. But not only that, and I could use any of you all as an example, not only that, but they also implicate Northgate. They implicate Papa. You know, how they act on the football field, how they act in the classroom, how they act. When they're driving down the road, Eli just got his driver's license. Jesus protect him. How, how they act implicates Northgate. Because they attend and part of this family. They, their reputation, our reputation is impacted by their lives. Did you guys know that? My, my reputation is implicated by your life, is, is impacted. But the greater reality is that those three Whitworth boys, because they're followers of Christ, implicate who Jesus is. Their lives either add to God's reputation or in the minds of man, take away from God's reputation. As we've been going through the study of the names of God, one of the things that I've said two or three different times is that all of the names of God in the Old Testament are imminent in the name of Jesus. In other words, he is the perfect representation, Hebrews says, the exact representation of God. He himself is one with the Father. And so he, and in him is the imminence of, of all the names. So the question that I really want to talk about today, and actually we're transcending uh, into a new series of messages about names of Jesus that help us understand who Jesus is. Today I want to introduce to you this question, who is Jesus? But before I jump into that, we have to do go back to understand the name of Yahweh. So I have a video that will help us with that. They do a very good job of connecting Yahweh, Jehovah. Some of us, including me, are like, like Yahweh, Jehovah, I don't know, sure. Let's go ahead and watch this quick video. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. 
And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the second key word here, Lord, written in all capital letters. This is the personal name of Israel's God. We first learn the meaning of this name in the story of Moses and the burning bush in the book of Exodus chapter 3. God appears to Moses and he commissions him to liberate the Israelites from slavery. And so Moses wonders, what if people ask the name of the God who has sent me? And so God responds, tell them, Ehyeh has sent me to you. Now, that Hebrew word Ehyeh means I will be. In other words, God's name means that he is the one who is and who will be. God's existence doesn't depend on anyone or anything else. This God simply is. But... It will sound kind of strange for Moses to go say to the Israelites, I will be has sent me to you. Only God can say, I will be. So in the next sentence, God tells Moses the version he should say aloud, Yahweh, the God of our ancestors, he has sent me to you. Now, that word Yahweh is the ancient Hebrew form of the verb he will be. And this is the personal name of the God of Israel. It appears over 6,500 times in the Old Testament. Now, here's what's interesting. Over the centuries, Israelites wanted to honor the sacred nature of this divine name. So as they read the Hebrew Bible aloud and they came to this name, they stopped saying Yahweh and instead started saying the Hebrew word for Lord, which is Adonai. Now, this practice has been continued throughout the centuries. And so later, when people started translating the Bible into English, they adopted the same practice. Instead of spelling out the divine name, they translated it as Lord, spelled in all capital letters. Okay, you got that? Good, because there's more. Ancient Jewish scribes wanted to prevent anyone from even accidentally saying this name aloud when you read the Hebrew Bible. And so they came up with a visual device to remind you to make sure you say Adonai. They took the four consonant letters of the divine name. These letters correspond to our English letters Y-H-W-H. Then they inserted the three vowels from the word Adonai and combined these together to create an artificial hybrid word, which if you pronounced it, it would say Yahuwah, but no Israelite ever said Yahuwah. It's simply a visual reminder to say the word Adonai. Now, it gets more interesting. Much later, Christian scribes came along who didn't know that Yahuwah was an artificial word. And so they began to say it aloud and spell it in their writings. This is the word that eventually entered into English as Jehovah. It's a word many people still use today. But the main thing is, the word Lord in all capital letters is an indication of the divine name. Don't confuse it with the word Lord in your English translations that's not in all capital letters. That is the actual Hebrew word Adon, which just means Lord or Master. This word can refer to people like kings or the master of a servant, even a shepherd over his sheep. And sometimes biblical authors will use this word to refer to God, like in the phrases, the Lord of all the earth or the Lord of lords. But behind all of these words, Yehovah, Lord, Adonai, stands the original divine name of the God of Israel. It refers to the one who was, who is, and who forever will be. Thanks for watching this word study video. It was the second in a six-part series on the Shema. You can stop and that. And a lot more videos on it. Was that helpful? It was, it was for me. Like, I've always, like, I thought it was Jehovah. For years, I would go Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Jireh, and, uh, and then finding out Yahweh. Well, Yahweh is the more accurate, historical, divine, personal, 
personal name of God. When he introduced himself to Israel as their deliverer, he came as the ever-existing one, the one that had no beginning and will have no end, Yahweh. So for us, for us to answer this question, who is Jesus, we need that foundation, okay, just as a heads up. So who is Jesus? Um, there is no other name who stirs up more affection or inspires more hatred on the planet than the name of Jesus. He causes a polarization. He is loved and worshipped by millions around the planet. And yet at the same time, if not renounced in certain places, will result in persecution, oppression, and execution. There's a study in Wikipedia, and just to let you know, Wikipedia is not a reliable source of information. However, it does give you a pulse of our culture, of what people are researching and looking into. And just recently, they did a study of who are the most 100 um, historical people who still have impacting culture today. By far and above, Jesus was number one research name even today. So people are interested in who Jesus is. So the question for us is, who is he? He's far away, the one that most books have been written by, most songs have been sung. There's nobody even close. The Bible is by far the most popular Bible of mankind. No book has been translated in more uh, languages. And so we ask this question, who is Jesus? You would think that it would be an easy answer, but for most, it's not. So what I want to do is look at four different categories of way people might answer Jesus. The first one I want to look at quickly is our culture. What, what, how does our culture view Jesus? He's often a popular punchline. And many of you in either school or workplaces or maybe in your families, he's an amazing swear word. I was on it, listening to a podcast, a very intriguing podcast the other day, and, and the host, a very smart, intelligent guy, but every time he wanted to express his bewilderment with our culture, his frustration or his anger, he used the name Jesus Christ in vain. And I don't know about you, but when that happens, there's something inside my spirit that goes, ouch! <laughs> Comedians use him as a topic of humor. Uh, many TV shows, it's like The Simpsons, play fun of him. Um, he's used in mockery a lot in our culture. If he's not ignored, he's mocked, and his followers are even more so. You, you throw on top of that the T-shirts that was, Jesus is my homebody, or hip-hop artists to thank Jesus for the wars they won, or even some of the confusing movies that's come out about Jesus. We understand that our culture does not take him seriously. What about the religious category? Most religions in their construct change your perspective or behavior so that you connect with the unseen realm, the spiritual realm, connect with God, whoever they claim God to be. So there is this constructing of our mindset and our behavior so that we connect with the other world. And so all of these religions have to do something with Jesus because Jesus is the one who has most effectively taught mankind about 
knowing God. Like the golden rule, most religions like value the golden rule or even the Sermon on the Mount is referred to by many religions. So what do they do with Jesus? They got to do something with Jesus. Judaism, which is the original language or uh, religion of Israel, says Jesus is a false prophet. Jehovah Witnesses say Jesus is one and the same with the archangel Michael. Mormons claim that Jesus is the son of God, but fall short of calling him God and equal with the father. Universalists look at Jesus as a great man, someone to be respected for his teaching. Baha'i faith says that Jesus is the manifestation of God as a prophet, but inferior to Muhammad. Buddhists say that Jesus was a man of enlightenment, not unlike Buddha. Don't you wonder why Buddha wasn't a swear word? I mean, it just seems like it would fit, oh, Buddha. <laughs> and just like, oh, Buddha. I just, it feels good to me. <laughs> Let's replace Jesus Christ's swear with, oh, Buddha, huh? <laughs> Hinduism. Jesus is a wise man or an incarnation of God, much like Krishna. Islam. Jesus is a prophet, but inferior to Muhammad. Obviously, most religions attribute positive attributes to Jesus, generally as a great teacher or a prophet, but they fall short of calling him God. Many people in our culture are confused when you ask. I, list, I would listen to this one survey where a guy was out on the streets and say, who is Jesus? And, and most people came up with like, I don't really know. So this is your culture. So the third category, we talked about culture, we talked about religious answer for who is Jesus. The third category is your personal answer, who is Jesus. And this is important to Jesus. One day he was walking with his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. You guys are familiar with this. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. You notice that religion had a lot more to do with their culture then than we, it is today. Then he asked this question. Who do you say that I am? I want, I want you to notice that he doesn't say, who do you think I am? Or who do you feel like I am? He's actually saying, what is your witness like? What are you saying out loud with your mouth who I am? Who do you say I am to this lost, confused world? It's interesting. I, I just kind of been paying attention to this as I'm around us and me. And, and I've noticed that oftentimes, most often, when we define who Jesus is, it's personally how he's met our needs. You know, um, I know that when I was 10 years old, I had somebody tell me at vacation Bible school that I need to ask Jesus to forgive me for my sins. And uh, if I want to go to heaven, I need to ask him into my heart. And, and if you don't, you're going to go to hell. I've shared this no-brainer for me, 10-year-old. I'm going to pray that prayer. And I did, all the way till I was 21. Like, if I, fall, if I die in my sleep, 
I prayed the prayer, right? And if you ask me who Jesus was at that point, I said, well, he, he's, my, he's my savior and my ticket to heaven, hopefully. I think many of us, you know, in this room would say, well, when things are going good, he's my cheerleader. Right? If I need a friend, he's the, he's the only one that really gets me. He's my therapist. Like, when I need to rant and I need to vent, he's the one that can handle what's going on inside of me. He's my miracle worker. When I've exhausted all my other resources, he's the one I run for, to for a miracle. And, and don't misunderstand me. He does show up in all those ways. But is that who he is? Is that what he would look for as an answer for who he is? And that's what I want to jump into John chapter 8. So if you're in your, have your Bibles or on your telephones, whatever, let's look at John chapter 8. Because John chapter 8 says who he says he is. And just to give you a context, we're actually going to, this, this whole chapter is worthy of, of studying for a couple Sundays. But we're just going to jump into the middle of this discussion, this dialogue between the religious leaders of Jews and Jesus. And it's heated. Somebody turn to your neighbor and say, heated. heated. Like, I mean, there is tension in the room. And these royal, these influential, powerful um, religious leaders are angry. At Jesus. They don't like him. They don't like he's got so many followers. They don't like how he stood in a place and caused confusion in the atmosphere. They are hot and bothered. But what I love about Jesus is he's not. He's cool collected. Hey, I just have a, a word of knowledge right now. I, I felt like um, when Elise was sharing her testimony about her family coming to know the Lord... I really felt something on that. And so right now, if you have a spouse or children or parents that don't know the Lord, now's the time to share. It's the season for salvation. How many have somebody in their mind you're thinking of right now? Raise your hand. Left it before the Lord. Stay right there. Lord Jesus, we're coming to agreement with Lisa's testimony. The people in our family... People in our neighborhood, people that we have witnessed to for years, will come to know Christ Jesus. And our witness will be bold, clear, and strong. And all of God's people said, I believe the Lord is going to give you grace today, a new grace to stay calm and collected in the discussion about Jesus. And, and no, no matter what the environment that the Holy Spirit is going to give you a fresh boldness and a fresh clarity and a fresh love to dialogue with those who don't believe and not be bothered. Look at what Jesus in John 8, the example. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I think I can see why this would make him angry. I can see why this is frustrating. They have a self-righteousness about them. And the deliverer is going to deliver them from what? The Roman Empire. But Jesus came to deliver them what? From their sinfulness. 
And so they're angry. They don't like him. They want him dead. We're going to find out from, at the end of this chapter that they look to kill him. I want to just say this real quickly. This is really important for us to grab a hold of. We live in a culture that wants Jesus to be tolerant, kind, and inclusive. And if you don't fall in line with that, then you are one who is a bigot and hateful. And I wonder how much we've like kind of softened the edges of Jesus, how much we've domesticated him so that he's more palatable to our culture or how much we've agreed with our culture's conclusions about things that Jesus is not in agreement about. Because we want to be seen as tolerant, kind, and inclusive. Because isn't Jesus tolerant, kind, inclusive? Well, not the Jesus that shows up in John chapter 8. Let's look at this. Then they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the children of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who had told you the truth. Which I heard from God, this Abraham did not know. Did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, this, this is really kind of interesting because like they're going down. They're hitting below the belt. We were not born of fornication. I, I just want you to be aware that they're aware of the rumor that Joseph wasn't Jesus's biological dad. There was a stigma that Jesus had to carry. Church. There is a stigma that you have to carry to be a witness for Christ. We had one father. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he, he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father now, come on, Jesus, you wouldn't say this, would you really? You are of your father, the devil. That doesn't feel very kind. It doesn't feel very tolerant. It doesn't feel very inclusive. This is the Jesus we represent, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand the truth because there is no truth in him. Here's the thing we've got to grab a hold of is that we cannot, we must not, if we want Jesus' name to be glorified, we cannot water down the gospel. We can't try to make it palatable by changing what the gospel is. We're in a season where many have fallen away from the church because they're more culturized than they are Christianized. You guys are looking at me with... I, I, I've seen so many people fall away from following Christ because they're more influenced by culture than the Bible. Is there anybody here that has seen this? How long has it been since you've told somebody, unless you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, you will die in your sins? Uh, we live in a culture that is tension and pain avoidant. 
And we see it as a, as a negative thing. We think in order to be loving, we must make people comfortable. In order to be kind, we must throw on warm environmental blankets. But Jesus is showing us here that true love speaks the truth. At the expense of being labeled intolerant and rejected as hateful. He's speaking, he's showing, Jesus is love, and he's showing that to be extremely loving means to be willing to be in a place of tension. I don't know how many of you husbands have experienced this, but I imagine you have. How many times your wife has come and sat down next to you and said, we need to talk? And immediately there's tension. Anybody experience it? Anybody have loved ones say, hey, I got something to talk to you about. And you're going, uh-oh. How many of you know that if you will lean into the tension and land on truth, peace is found? But we often will avoid tension and give a false hope of peace, hoping that truth will be found. And it's not found unless you go through the tension. Tension causes growth. Say that out loud. Tension causes growth. Our culture needs some tension applied by the church by speaking truth in love. I'm not asking that you become offensive. The gospel is already offensive. The gospel is already offensive. You carry love as you share the gospel. So what do the Jews say? <laughs> oh, they just keep going lower and lower and lower. Jesus answered to him, verse 48, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So now they're throwing ethnically charged attacks, causing, calling him, you're, you're one of those Samaritans, those half-breeds. Jesus doesn't even address that. He said, I'm not going to even, that's not even worthy of me addressing and saying that he's a demon. One thing these religious people have right is you can't remain neutral on Jesus. He's either the, a liar or a lunatic or the Lord. You can't say he's a good teacher. It's not intellectually a valid option. Jesus seems calm, collected, keeps the door of grace open to him. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There's one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, look at how he keeps that door open to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. It's interesting to me how in the midst of that tension, they're attacking him, criticizing him, accusing him, anger, spitting accusations. He stays calm and says, hey, if you follow me and listen to my words, you'll have eternal life. He's not bothered by their accusations. Church, say, I'm not bothered by their accusations. Then they asked Jesus the million-dollar question in John 8, 53. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Who are you, Jesus? Tell us. 
So Jesus answers, verse 54, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. If I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. There he is being kind again. But I, do not, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, this is a really weird thing for a man to say. Because Abraham had been dead for thousands of years. And this is what confused the Jews and made them, you're, you're a crazy man. Look at verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And then Jesus removes all doubt about who he is. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. This is the same language that God revealed himself in the burning bush. I am the existent one, the one that had no beginning and the one that has no end. I will ever for be as the one who is sufficient in myself. I am the covenant God that spoke to Moses. I am the one in the burning bush. You can imagine these Jewish leaders who wouldn't even use the name Yahweh. They said Hashem, which means the name, the holy name. That's what they use to actually use, say, to refer to Yahweh. And Jesus steps into that place and says, I am. They're using a Greek, same type of word, I am. And of course, they get so angry. Blasphemy. A man calling himself God. They must kill this man and shut his mouth forever. And so they pick up stones to stone him. You know, there's those people who say that, um, that Jesus never claimed to be God, but he did in several different times. Just another place to show you. In John chapter 10, they pick up stones to stone him again. And uh, he says, for what good work have I done that you would stone me? And, they, and Jews answered him, for good work we did not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Um, there really is two choices for us, even today, is either we ignore him and say he was a crazy man, a lunatic, or we bow our knees to him as our Lord. I think C.S. Lewis says it the best. He says, you must make your choice. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet as your Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a good moral teacher. He's not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a liar. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was 
and is God. So the question is, if Jesus is the Lord of the heavens and the earth, how do we display him in our days? How do we display him in our workplace? How do we display him to our spouse? How do we make him famous in our classroom? You see, because if Jesus is the Lord, then he is preeminent over everything else in our lives. I mean, he is the one that we bow our hearts to and surrender, like Clay was saying earlier. He is the Lord of the heavens and the earth. And, and we, we don't bow to him just because he's God. We bow to him because he's good. Somebody say that. There is nobody gooder than Jesus. But don't bring him down to your level. Don't patronize him as somebody you're so familiar with that you would live like you want, not thinking about his reputation. He should be preeminent in our thoughts, in our ambitions, in our motives, in our goals. We want him to be lifted up. The question I have for us as the church is, does Jesus exist for you? Or do you exist for Jesus? In the midst of his claims to be God, there's this gentleness about him that's hard to comprehend. There's a slowness to anger. There's a patience. There's an empathy as our high priest. I mean, he is amazing. He is love personified. He is the one that meets our needs of belonging and significance. But in that, we can never hold him captive to our expectations. Every one of us today, I believe, needs to reconsider what it means to bow. Because he is the Lord. He is a source of life. I said this several weeks ago, and it's something that's been happening in my heart. I, I honestly believe we become way too familiar with somebody we barely know. Um, recently, somebody that you, you and I, this church really respects, a man who, uh, who has been on the forefront of believing God for miracles and healing and signs and really a revivalist, raising up a culture revival, not just in America, but around the planet. Somebody who has modeled faith, um, expectation that God would move mightily on his behalf and the world's behalf and has demonstrated that through his faith, Bill Johnson. And he recently, uh, after a two-year battle with cancer, lost his wife. Benny died, I think, a week and a half ago, maybe two weeks ago. And uh, he, he came that next Sunday morning, I think like four days, maybe three, I don't know, a few days after she died, and he preached to his church. And this is something I believe, Mariah, you want to come on up here? This is something I believe um, we need to capture. 
Bill, Bill said, God is not a vending machine that I get to put a quarter into and withdraw from him what I want. He chooses what he gives. But it is the wicked at heart that says, God didn't do what I wanted. He's a liar. May I never be found critiquing God when things don't go my way. May I always be found having a heart ready to be critiqued by him. Is God my friend? He is. But he's my Lord first. I'll never have the pain I'm feeling right now in eternity. So in this moment, it is my privilege to respond rightly to the Lord of my life with deeper trust, deeper devotion. I will bow before the Lamb on the throne in awe and worship him forever, but never will I have the face-to-face chance to do that while I'm in this kind of pain. So in this moment, I choose to do that. When I said yes to Jesus, I gave up my right to fully understand or to be in charge of my life. What does revival look like? Revival looks like the church being so on fire that the reputation of Jesus' name is exalted in every area of the life that your witness cannot be denied. I believe we're on the cusp of revival. But it will happen when the people of God say, I'm 100% surrendered. I'm all in. Could you stand with me? I remember the moment. (laughs) I remember the moment when Jesus transitioned from being my Savior to get me to heaven to becoming my Lord, who would take over my life. I was 21. I was in my bedroom. I wasn't at a church service. All of a sudden, I realized my creator was on that cross for me. How could I not give him my life? How could I hold back? How could I not surrender and say, I trust you? I mean, who else can I trust that the God who created me will die for me? Everything changed when I said, Jesus, I no longer want you just to be my savior. I want you to be the Lord of my life. Take over. Take the steering wheel. You're the only one I can trust with my life. I give it to you. I think there's some people in this room who are at that place to transition from Jesus just being your savior to get to heaven. And you're saying, I want you to be my Lord. I want you to take over my life. I surrender to your leadership and your lordship. Make something beautiful of my life. And may Jesus Christ's name be glorified in the heavens and on the earth and under the earth, because someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess 
that Jesus is Lord. But now is an opportunity, church, to reestablish this in your life, that he is the Lord. There's no place for compromise. There's no place for half-heartedness. There's no place for apathy. He is jealous for his namesake. And it's time for us to live our lives jealous for his namesake. If you want to make that dedication, we're going to sing this song. And if you just come up to the front before the Lord, and I'll just, just pray for you after we get done singing this song. Go ahead, Mariah, let's sing this song. And just come forward. This is before you and the Lord, then not the church so much.